Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In his article, What is Philosophy as a Way of Life, John Sellers is going to introduce a number of helpful distinctions and contrasts. And one that he introduces very early on in the paper is between the, as he calls it, scientific conception of philosophy and the humanistic conception of philosophy. He also calls these two competing images of philosophy. These are ways that philosophers understand what it is that their activity and their discipline is supposed to be doing. So it's providing, you could say, motivations, norms, orientations. And he says that these are two quite different ways of thinking about philosophy. He also says, let's be clear, neither of these labels are ideal. They'll work for present purposes. And he also has two figures in mind to bring up as examples of this, but we could multiply many more as well. So as the representative of the scientific conception of philosophy, Aristotle, and as the representative of the humanistic conception of philosophy, Socrates. And this is kind of an interesting set to pick out, not least because, of course, there's a, a missing figure between them. Socrates is the teacher of Plato, and Plato is the teacher, although, you know, later on, after Aristotle's already done some stuff on, on his own, of Aristotle. And we could ask, well, where does Plato himself actually figure into this distinction? And I've got a few ideas about that that I might give you at the end of this. In any case, Sellers says we can use these two as prime examples. And I think he's right about this. And he's going to, in some respects, differ from the person who's most famous in the present for this phrase, philosophy is a way of life, Pierre Adot, in saying that Aristotle actually does represent something that perhaps is distanced from philosophy as a way of life. And there's, there's a few things that we can say about that after fleshing out the distinction as well. So he says, let's begin with Socrates. In the Apology, Plato has Socrates say that his principal concern in his philosophical activity is a desire to transform his way of life. He says there's a few passages that stand out. The first is when Socrates tries to describe his philosophical mission. Those who've read the Apology, of course, know that Socrates claimed that he had a divine mission, that the God had given them this task of doing philosophy by, you know, the oracle. There's a whole interesting story to be told there. But he says he presents it as a duty to live as a philosopher not just to think as a philosopher, not just to teach philosophy or to foster philosophy, but to live, to engage in practice in the course of a life, in the relationships that he has, in the conversations that he's going to carry out, even in gestures that perhaps are not by themselves communicative, but do convey something. So examining himself and others, 
Later, in response to his accusers who've condemned him to death, you say, you've brought about my death in the belief that through it, you'll be delivered from submitting the conduct of your lives to criticism. So Sellers says this idea that the task at hand is to examine lives, and it's not just examining your own life, right? It's not just navel gazing, you could say. It's not just a trick for narcissists who want to spend more and more time on themselves, but also examining the lives of others. And to do so in a way that is not just to elevate yourself above them or to criticize them for the sake of criticizing them, but to, you know, improve one's own life and one's the, the life of those that one cares about. So that's a really central thing, this notion of focusing on one's life, on a coherent pattern borne out within the structure of one's own living. So Socrates takes philosophy as an activity directed at trying to figure out how to live well, subjecting our current life to examination. Here's where we get to the second important point. Knowledge is part of philosophy for somebody like Socrates. As a matter of fact, when you look at the dialogues, Plato's dialogues, but also even those of Xenophon, attaining knowledge is something that is desired. Is it desired solely for its own sake or is it desired in order to do something? Well, the answer in the case of philosophy as a way of life is that knowledge is, you could say, always not necessarily practical, but it has practical implications and orientations. That's why you want to know things so that you can focus on what needs to be fixed, what needs to be improved, what needs to be done in order to live well. Sellers says the motivation is clear. Socrates wants to find out how to live well, not just for the sake of knowing how to live well, but because he actually wants to live well, to enjoy a good life, whatever that may be. This is a bit of a side note here, but there's a lot of people, this is a common theme in, in practical philosophy. There's a lot of people who read and talk about philosophy and we can extend this further to like leadership and self-help and all sorts of other practical oriented things. And all they do is they read about it. They never actually apply it. They don't experiment with it. They don't see whether it's going to do anything. Aristotle himself talks about this in the Nicomachean Ethics as these people who read treatises of ethics and then they don't do anything different. So that's knowledge that's not really functional. And that's not what Socrates is about. Then Sellers says, if we turn to Aristotle, or at least the Aristotle of the metaphysics, I think you could say this about other books as well, but the metaphysics stands out in this respect, we find a different image of philosophy. He presents the task of philosophy as uncovering, and I would say understanding, knowing the causes and principles of things. Philosophy is knowledge of the truth, but it's not action-oriented truth, or we could say practical truth. It's theoretical truth, right? He says there's practical knowledge that's concerned with action, but in the metaphysics, he identifies philosophy, or at least the best part of philosophy, with theoretical knowledge and prioritizes theoretical knowledge over practical knowledge because it deals with things that are unchanging. There's an interesting story to tell there about why Aristotle makes that choice. Even in the things where there is some focus on what is changing, it can be done, for, for example, human affairs, right? it can be done in a way that's primarily theoretical rather than practical. And in Aristotle, one of the problems in his works is the hard split between the practical, which is just about doing, not about knowing, at least he says so, and the theoretical. So 
there's this prioritization of the theoretical modes of knowledge and truth over the practical. And, and you know, this is kind of a, a problem. He also mentions one other philosophy here. He says the paradigmatic example of a philosopher Aristotle has in mind is not Socrates, but instead Thales, a physicist in, in the early sense. The man who fell down a well because he was engrossed in studying the stars. He failed to look where he was going. And he, he says that granted in the metaphysics, Aristotle does say that philosophy embraces theoretical, practical, and productive questions. But he insists that first philosophy that he's examining here is the most important part of philosophy. Right, So there's a prioritization. He says the motivation is not to learn how to live well, but to understand the way the world works. So we've got two main and perhaps competing motivations here. They can't both be on top. And it's really tough to make them exactly equal or to integrate them fully. Now, Sellers considers the possibility that maybe his position on Aristotle here is wrong or a little bit too one-sided because Pierre Adot himself has said that Aristotle, the Aristotelians, the Lyceum are engaged in philosophy as a way of life, just not quite in the same way, say, as the Stoics or Socrates was or the Cynics. And so Sellers has to engage that. And I think that, quite frankly, Sellers is, is right on this and Addo is probably wrong. So he says that Addo did his best to subsume Aristotle under the banner of philosophy as a way of life by reminding us that the Aristotelian ideal of theoria or contemplation, theoretical truth, is an activity that itself becomes a lived practice and so something that effectively becomes a way of life. And that's quite true, right? Theoria is an action. It's not action in the same sense as political or moral action, let alone productive action, but it is an action and you do have to arrange your life in such a way that you would be able to not just acquire the skills, but be able to engage in that activity. And Aristotle does think that's the best life. And if we do look at the Lyceum, his school and its development afterwards with like Theophrastos and Lycos and all these other people, they seem to have followed that course. So there, there's something to that. But he, he goes on and he says, Hado does not deny that for Aristotle, the highest form of theoretical knowledge is something that's chosen for itself. It's true that the pursuit of theoretical knowledge might itself form a way of life. The claim that this form of life is the motivating force for Aristotle seems less convincing. What matters to Aristotle most of all is understanding the way the world works, given that he will prefer a life devoted to the pursuit of that kind of understanding over a life devoted to the pursuit of anything else. That doesn't mean that the question of how best to live was upper mind in his mind in the way that it clearly was for Socrates. So you know, he does consider the best way to live, but it's not motivating him in the same way. And so then Sellers says, well, we do have to consider another possible challenge as well. What about the fact that Aristotle wrote two books called The Ethics, the Nicomachean and Eudamian Ethics, where it's all about practical life and the virtues and vices and analysis of you know, how our faculty of choice works and habits. You know, he also considers happiness. Okay, and we could even make this tougher and say, not only does Aristotle consider those sort of questions in those two ethics, it's also in the politics, it's also in the rhetoric, it's also in the poetics, what we have of it, 
in book one, comes up in, in the topics to some degree, and in book three, it comes up in some of the problems. There's, there's a lot of connections to this. There's a robust moral, political, rhetorical philosophy running through Aristotle. Presumably he wouldn't have studied that unless he was really interested in that. And we also know that Aristotle was very interested in communities and how they worked and studied a whole bunch of different constitutions. We only have one of the many that he actually and, and his students wrote together. Theophrastus, his, his successor, continued that study with analyses of the legal systems of all these different political organizations in ancient Greece. So there clearly was a practical aspect, right? Is this enough to get us what we want as philosophy as a way of life? There's a couple things to be said here. So Sellers says, in the opening book of the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle famously says, all human beings identify eudaimonia with living well. But later on in book 10, he prioritizes the contemplative life over other forms of life. And he doesn't do so based on its propensity to generate eudaimonia, but rather on the superiority of its objects of knowledge, unchanging universals rather than changeable matters. The contemplative life is best not because it is identified with living well, but because it devotes itself to the highest form of knowledge there is. And in a certain respect, you could say that Aristotle, despite his insistences that practical philosophy is all about like doing things the right way, when you look at the politics, when you look at the Athenian constitution, even when you look at parts of the ethics, there's a lot of theorizing going on in this. It's not just a manual of like how to do things right and understand yourself and make yourself a better person. There's a lot of understanding things for the sake of understanding these human affairs and it becomes much more theoretical. So, you know, arguably Aristotle really does fit into this more scientific paradigm. It's interesting, uh, this is not something that Sellers brings up, but you notice that within the Hellenistic and later Roman cultural sphere where philosophy plays a very important role, the Aristotelians themselves don't play that big of a role compared to other schools like the academic skeptics and then the Pyronian skeptics as well, or the Stoics or the Epicureans or the other Platonists. There are Aristotelians and they are important, but very often they have a reputation, but they're not the most important and most attractive way of doing things. It could be because there's so much emphasis on the theoretical rather than the practical. We can be blinded to that in part because in the Anglosphere, our so-called revival of virtue ethics, which had never actually gone away, was so closely connected with neo-Aristotelianism that we'd assume that Aristotle was like the, the main game in town. He wasn't. So, you know, I think Sellers is actually quite correct on this. Now, what is the upshot of this? He's saying all of this because this helps to illuminate what philosophy of a, as a way of life would be and what it wouldn't be. He says, we have a clear metaphysical division between Socrates and Aristotle. Both are committed to the pursuit of knowledge. Both offer an, an image of an ideal life involving the pursuit of knowledge. But there's a clear difference when we turn to their ultimate motivations. Socrates pursues knowledge in order to live a philosophical life, while Aristotle lives a philosophical life in order to pursue knowledge. And Sellers says this is a subtle, but I think important difference. I don't think it's actually that subtle of a difference. This is quite in your face. And he says, it's also the difference between what I call the scientific and humanistic conceptions of philosophy and the subsequent history of Western philosophy 
philosophy has seen both of these flourish at different times, sometimes in combination, sometimes apart. And so we see some philosophers emphasizing this more. There's kind of a tradition and a continuity here. Some people would think that philosophy is really just the scientific conception of philosophy, some movements of philosophy, and they would be divorced from philosophy as a way of life. Philosophy as a way of life is always going to be more focused on this humanistic conception that we see in Socrates, but also in Cicero and Petrarch and so many other people down the centuries. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.